For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. So for new people, I'm Taigen Layton, the uh, guiding teacher at Ancient Dragons Zen Gate. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm going to speak today about one of our key texts in what is currently called Soto Zen. And this is the Song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi by Dongshan, who we could say is the founder of our lineage in China. Um, he lived 807 to 869. There will not be a test. Um, but uh, I've spoken about uh, this song, this text many times. We will be chanting it at the end of the talk. Um, and I, uh, this is part of a series. I spoke about this a few weeks ago, uh, about the Dharma of Suchness. And uh, that that talk is on our website on the podcast page. So you can look at it again. But I want to review a little bit just to start. Uh, David Ray, maybe you could just po- um, share screen the, the first half of the uh, first page, whatever. Uh little lower if you could. Yeah, good. Okay. So uh, just as a review, the the focus of this teaching poem or song is uh, the first two lines. The Dharma of suchness is intimately transmitted by Buddhists and ancestors. Now you have it, preserve it well. So the subject of this whole song is the Dharma of suchness, the teaching or practice or reality of just this, of this suchness, of this immediacy, this immediate presence that we face when we face the wall in Zazen, that includes everything. So this uh, teaching or reality of suchness is exactly what is transmitted or conveyed by all the Buddhists and ancestors. So, In China, this was a transmission text. Uh, And uh, I don't don't think we have any um, uh, copies of this text before around 1000 or so um, written down. But of course, as it was an important transmission text, it was memorized. And um, as songs can be memorized. And uh, so this is... Originally, this was 
when it says now you have it, preserve it well, that was uh, conveyed to uh, lineage holders in the uh, Chinese Tsautong, it's called in Chinese, Soto in Japanese lineage. Uh, but starting oh, sometime in the 1600s in Japan, it started to be part of our regular liturgy. So when we chant this, the Dharma of suchness, this reality of awareness of, the, of presence is conveyed by Buddhists and ancestors. That's what Buddhists and ancestors teach. And now you have it, preserve it well. So in some very real sense, what our practice is about is taking care of this awareness, this teaching, this reality of just this, this suchness. And how do we take care of it? And so this whole, uh, it's two pages in our translation, this whole teachings poem is about how to take care of this teaching of suchness. And just to put some more context in it, uh, at the bottom of what you can see on, on the screen, it is like facing a precious mirror, form and reflection, behold each other. You are not it, but in truth it is you. So that's the second most important couplet in this in this song. And again, uh, this is a review of the talk I gave a few weeks ago. But this you are not it, but in truth it is you goes back to a story about Dongshan, the founder of uh, our, our school, and our lineage in China. Um, and um, the story is that he, when he was leaving his teacher, Yunyan, to go out on pilgrimage, he asked his teacher, if somebody asks me later on, what is the, what is your dharma? What is your essential teaching? What should I say? And after a pause, Yunyan said, just this is it. And Dongshan didn't know what to say. He left. And as he was on his way, he was crossing a stream and he looked down on the stream and he saw his reflection in the stream and realized what all this was about. And he said, I am not it, but it actually is me. And here in this song, it's you are not it, but in truth it is you. So um, I called Dongshan the founder of our lineage in China. In Japan in the 1200s, the founder of our lineage who brought this from China to Japan is Eihei Dogen. And in one of his primary writings, Genjo Koan, he says, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things, that's delusion. That everything arises and experiences itself as awakening. So that's another way of saying, you are not it. Our small self, to put it that way, our ego self is not this reality of suchness. But this reality of suchness, everything arising together, we are part of that. We're not separate from that. So it actually is you. So I, I spoke about this at length um, in the previous talk. Uh, I think it was January 9th. It's on our website. Um, and so this is just by way of review. But this dynamic of the um, way in which we, uh, well, there are many themes in this in this long teaching poem. The primary one is just how do we take care of this reality of suchness? How do we preserve it? How do we pass it along? 
And of course, Dongshan, what I call Dongshan, the founder of our lineage in China, we can take it back to Bodhidharma, who brought uh, Zen Chan in Chinese from India to China, back to Shakyamuni Buddha and all of his wonderful sutras that he spoke. And, uh, and many Japanese and, and other Asian teachers who came to America in our particular lineage, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who uh, founded San Francisco Zen Center, where I trained. Um, and uh, there, there's numbers of his writings and talks, but uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind is maybe primary. At any rate, um, we are not it, but it is us. We are not this reality of suchness in terms of our personal agendas and personal uh, resume and all of that, but it actually is us. So as I said, there are many themes about how we take care of this in this teaching poem. Uh, What I want to focus on today is the use of language and uh, related to that, how uh, how, um, the ultimate response in our our life, in our practice, in our difficult world. Um, Other themes, just to mention, uh, again, the teacher-student relationship uh, uh, more about about the principle of response, um, and also uh, in the fivefold interaction, which I'm not going to go into today, but the relationship between the ultimate reality, the universal awareness that we get a taste of in our zazen, and the particular phenomenal situation, our our own dharma positions in our life and in this world. So that's a whole complex process and teaching. But I want to focus today on language and how how to use language and how language is used and how language is not the point. So a a little further down in, uh, no, keep it where it is, uh, David, thank you. Um, At the top of that now, the line, the meaning does not reside in the words, but a pivotal moment brings it forth. So this is a key teaching. The meaning, which translated, so there's many ways to translate this line. The meaning, uh, that Chinese character also means intention. It also means mind. We could say the heart of the matter is not, uh, cannot be expressed in words. It's beyond our our uh, verbalizations, for for very good reasons. Uh, our uh, and I can go on about that. But uh, our language is subject, verb, object, and and we uh, naturally, based on our language. Uh, objectify things of the world. Everything out there is, is, are, is objects, dead objects that we can manipulate, you know, to exploit and to get what we want from the world, to manipulate. And we do this with people. We do this with uh, the minerals and oil and the earth. We, we uh, see everything out there as dead objects. So, of course, the meaning is not in the words, the intention, the mind, the heart is not in language. Language is, uh, uh, supports our delusion. And yet we, here I am talking, and we 
do use language and and there's a huge body of Zen literature which is supposedly beyond words and letters. But a pivotal moment brings it forth. So David, you can take away the screen share for now. Uh, So this line, a pivotal moment brings it forth uh, is uh, very interesting and very complex. So, uh, pivotal moment. The, one of the, the character there is key um, in, in uh, Sino-Japanese. It's the character in uh, one of Dogen's writings, Zenki, Total Dynamic Activity. It's also the last character in my teacher, Tenshin Zenki's name. Um, it means a lot of things. It's one of, it's a lot of Chinese characters have many meanings. This one particularly um, so, uh, it, that pivotal moment, uh, also could be rendered or seen as the arrival of energy, the energe- the, uh, energetic moment brings it forth, even though this meaning, this heart is not something that can be put into words, um, it does respond. So part of Part of what I want to talk about today is just how uh, this uh, energetic uh, mind, intention, heart responds to our practice. So a pivotal moment brings it forth. Um, pivot is an interesting word, and it's used a lot in this kind in this aspect of of. Uh, uh, our tradition in Chinese and Japanese Zen, uh, there's a there's a, a a space and a time and a place where something shifts. There's a pivot. Uh, sometimes we might feel that in sasen, where we're sitting facing the wall and uh, we maybe feel dull or bored, or maybe our mind is racing around. But but at some point we might just there might be a pause and we just are there in this. In uh, this dharma of suchness, so this pivotal moment also could be rendered as uh, the inquiring impulse. Uh, so this character key means many many things. It means a loom, like in weaving. It means uh, the operation uh, operations. It means the uh, fundamental uh, workings of the world. Uh, there's many ways to translate that character. Uh, so this pivotal moment brings it forth. It's not something we can figure out exactly or even necessarily study, but we might recognize it. When we, when we bring forth some question, some deep question about what are we doing here? What is the meaning of this life? Um, this is this pivotal moment that brings it forth. Um, so, um, just our, in our energy looking into how, how, how is this? What is the point of our practice? What are we doing here? What is, how does this affect our life? How do, how can we express this awareness in our everyday activity? All those kinds of questions. Uh, this has been, um, translated as the the uh, 
questioning student brings it forth. So all of those uh, meanings are there. A pivotal moment brings it forth, even though this uh, meaning or mind is not something that can be caught in words, even though I'm talking about it. <laughs> so uh, that's the central line for the talk today. But there's there's more to say about it in this in this uh, in this poem. A little further down, it says, "Although it is not constructed, it is not beyond words." So, uh, the this meaning, this fundamental heart mind is this our deepest intention is not conditioned. It's not constructed. It's not something we make up. It comes from someplace deeper. Although it is not constructed, it is not beyond words. So uh, Dongshan is saying that actually we can use words to convey it. This is why uh, Zen teaching is often uh, expressed in poems, in nature, nature imagery, in uh, these teaching stories called koans sometimes, which um, kind of bend our awareness or change our way of thinking or turn how we usually see things. So it's not beyond words. We can use words to point to it, the way poetry points to something, uh, even though, well, we'll, we'll see, more, see more about that, even though it's not something that we can define or put down or put in some uh, linear or literal framework. Um, a little further up in the, in, um, um, in this, it says, um, well, this is, this is about the principle of response. Turning away and touching is both, are both wrong for it is like a massive fire. If we turn away from this Dharma of suchness, if we, say, oh, I can't, you know, uh, people come to Zazen and think, oh, this is, this is not something I can do. And it's challenging to just, it's amazing how challenging it is to just sit still and face the wall for 30 or 40 minutes. <laughs> you know, you would think that and in some ways it's the simplest thing in the world. Just sit, <laughs> try not to move, keep your eyes open a little bit. Um, and yet, uh, we all know that, the, and some of you may be here for the first time, and maybe this is your first time sitting, I'm not sure, but it, there's something about it that's very tricky. And why and how it's very tricky is not so obvious. <laughs> um, part of it is just that we see our thoughts and feelings coming up, and... Uh, Sometimes we don't like it <laughs> and uh, we have to get, we have to become intimate and familiar with ourselves and everything. This is the, the process of sustained sitting. Uh, anyway, I want to continue with some of the lines in this, um, this song, the song of, of suchness, song of the jewel mirror, the jewel mirror being, you know, in some ways referring to that stream that uh, Dongshan looked down in and saw that Seha's reflection and said, uh, I'm not that, but it actually is me. That's me. 
And all of reality, the suchness of reality is you. You're included in it, each one of us. And yet uh, my ideas about it and my uh, program of, of who me is, <laughs> that's not it. So there's this funny uh, dynamic there. But, but continuing about this, um, uh, about this process of how it relates to language and how we can um, be aware of this operation, this working in our lives and in our practice. Another line in this teaching poem says, um, what, um, led by our inverted views, we take black for white. When inverted thinking stops, the affirming mind naturally accords. So uh, inverted thinking is like what I was describing in terms of how language conditions our thinking. We think we are separate from all that stuff out there. And, you know, we're trained in our consumerist society to get all of it, to get more of it, to get get more stuff for me, you know, that's this competitive consumerist society that we're all conditioned in. And it's, and it's in some ways a function of not just our corrupt society, but, um, the way this can be corrupted or can be twisted, can be of black White. We don't uh, have the wholeness of reality. So uh, right after that, um, David, maybe you can put up the second, the middle of the second page, just so people can see the lines I'm referring to. Uh, so it's down the second page. And it says, led by their inverted views, they take black for white. When inverted thinking stops, the affirming mind naturally accords. If you want to follow in the ancient tracks, please observe the sages of the past. Yeah. Um, so I've been talk- I was talking about the ancestors, Dongshan and Bodhidharma and Shakyamuni Buddha and Dogen and Suzuki Roshi. Um, but this is referring to a story from the Lotus Sutra. It says, if you want to follow in the ancient tracks, please observe the sages of the past. One on the verge of realizing the Buddha way contemplated a tree for 10 kalpas. So this refers to a particular Buddha. And the his story is in the Lotus Sutra. And this is from uh, a long time ago. Um, many world systems ago. I forget his name, but it's the long name that's in the Lotus Sutra. But he was just at the point of total awakening, unsurpassed complete awakening, the awakening Shakyamuni Buddha uh, experienced when he looked at the morning star in the story we know. Um, And this Buddha was just on the verge of total realization, which means to say he was pretty pretty far awake (laughs) already. And it says, 
contemplated a tree for ten kalpas. So just a, a historical footnote, in China and Japan, as Zen evolved, we sit together in uh, meditation halls. And, you know, this is something that we really miss here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, our uh, temple that we, were, that we had for 12 years in North Central Center, Chicago, uh, we had to abandon when the lease expired at the end of last year. Well, at, at the end of 2020, 2020 uh, because it wasn't very COVID friendly. So we lost our living space, our temple sitting space, thanks to COVID. And we're all sitting in this pandemic now and uh, learning a lot of things about reality and the world and our practice, thanks to it. Um, but it's not the same as sitting together. The Zoom. Uh, so, David, you could take away the the uh, share screen now when you're when you're ready. This um, this Zoom world that we practice in, where we see uh, many faces and names, and we can see each other, you know, pretty well on the Zoom page. This is a practice place. This is a meditation hall in a way. But many of us still miss the um, our temple on Irving Park Road. And uh, about, up till about a month ago, we were renting space in a Lutheran church and sitting together for about five weeks, Sunday morning and Monday evening. And uh, it was wonderful for many of us just to be sitting together in person. Um, and because, of, again, because of COVID, we had to take a break from that. And we're still waiting to see when we can go back to that, um, to sitting in person. Uh, But again, on the verge of realizing the Buddha way, this Buddha who did become a full Buddha contemplated, first contemplated a tree for 10 kalpas. And before there were meditation halls in India, the monk's practice was, when, well, they gathered together in the rainy season, but otherwise they wandered around throughout India or uh, northeast, what's now northeast India was where they were, where they were hanging out, but they wandered far and wide. And, but when they would go, each of them on their own would go to meditate, they would sit facing a tree, they would sit down. So our, 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 our tradition's relationship to trees is huge and very important. Um, they would, instead of, there was no, they weren't, there was no meditation hall where they sat together, but they each would sit and face a particular tree. So it's like facing the wall. And so the story about this, uh, this particular Buddha, whose name is very long and I, I forgot to look it up, but I probably couldn't pronounce it anyway. Uh, But he sat for 10 kalpas, looking at this tree, just on the edge of becoming a full Buddha. So this is an important story for us about, uh, well, it's about response. It's, it's about the limitations of language, too. Um, so we could say this is bodhisattva practice, not to fully become a Buddha, but to stay in the world and um, respond to the difficulties of, of per, our personal suffering, of the suffering of our friends and neighbors, of all the people who've been lost through this pandemic, and all the ways in which we are uh, 
lost from having lost so much from this pandemic and, you know, all the other difficulties of the world through the ages. So just on the verge of becoming a full Buddha, this this Buddha just sat there and faced the tree. And that's a, and the story is mentioned here because it's a wonderful example for us in some ways. Looking back at um, following the ancient sages, following their tracks, uh, observe the sages of the past. Uh, so, um, again, this is um, strange and um, something about not being caught by language, being willing to just, to be uncomfortable sometimes, to not know exactly, to not have all the answers. This is our life. This is our practice. And yet it responds. So there's this impossibility of pinning it down in language. And yet there's some way in which it expresses itself to us. This is really important and, uh, again, difficult to pin down. Um, So uh, one of the other uh, places in the song of the precious mirror, the jewel mirror, Samadhi, uh, right after it says, uh, you are not it, but in truth it is you, going back to Dongshan's seeing his reflection in the rippling stream. It says, like a newborn child, it is fully endowed with five aspects, no going, no coming, no arising, no abiding. This refers to the fivefold uh, integration of the universal or ultimate with our particular situation in this phenomenal world. And so there are many fives in in, in this uh, teaching poem, and that's a whole different Dharma talk. But Right there, and then it says "Baba Wawa," a transliteration of the Sino-Japanese. "Baba Wawa," is anything said or not? In the end, it says nothing, for the words are not yet right. Well, our our words are not yet right. My words today are not yet right. They're they're, um, and we have with us is is Amaya there, Ko? Yeah, so we have with us uh, one of these um, babes in the world. <laughs> I don't know. If she, don't, you don't have to get her to show everyone. It's okay, Co. But, uh, oh, there she is. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, it's just like a babe in the world. Co, is, has, she said, has she uttered anything yet? Made any utterances? Doggy. Doggy. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and I think she's named her cow Ba. <laughs> ba. Ba Ba Wawa. <laughs> so language doesn't, can't quite get it. And so this is, so Dongshan here is using the metaphor of children who are not yet speaking, uh, not yet speaking in the usual way that we think of speaking. They don't have the grammar. They don't have all the vocabulary. <laughs> but, um, you know, doggy, that's pretty good. <laughs> so uh, 
but is anything said or not? So this is like all of us and my babbling here. It's not yet right, but maybe the point is just to convey something about how we practice with uh, the limitations of our language. So there's another story from uh, the sixth ancestor, Hui Neng, who uh, is another founder of our lineage, we could say. This is the sixth Chinese ancestor. A student came to him, and Hui Neng said to him, what is this that thus comes? Very funny way of saying, who are you? <laughs> what is this that thus comes? And Nanyue, who became one of the two great successors to the sixth ancestor, was baffled. He didn't know what to say. You know, in these teaching stories, sometimes it seems like they're talking back and forth very quickly. Sometimes there's a space, there's a, there's a you know, a response might happen sometime after the question. In this case, it's the teaching story tells us that Nanyue went to the meditation hall and sat like a, an iron rod for eight years. So they tell us it was eight years before the next part of the story. The next part of the story is the student Nanyue came back to the sixth ancestor and said, when I first came, you asked me, what is this that this comes? Now I can now I can give you a response. And then he said, anything I say misses the mark. So this is the point, of, one of the points of this, of the theme of language in the song of the Jewel Mary Samadhi. Anything I say misses the mark. And, but then the sixth ancestor said to Nanyue, so is there practice realization or not? If the, if we can't, if it all, anything we say misses the mark, can we practice? Can we uh, find full awareness or not? And Nanua proved that he hadn't wasted his time. He said, it's not that there's no practice realization, it's just that it can't be defiled. So all of, all of our language, all of the uh, huge libraries full of commentaries on these Zen teaching stories and commentaries on those commentaries and commentaries on those, um, they miss the mark. And yet the actual practice and the actual awareness of realization no matter how bad your words are, no matter how limited they are, you can't mess it up. It's there. It's here. It's right in the stream that we look at. It's right in the experience of what you see in the wall. Or if you want to go out and sit in front of a tree, it's a little cold to do that here in Chicago. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of snow. Uh, but um, it's here. This awareness, this awakeness, is possible. It happens. It's actually always here. It's the nature of reality. It's this dharma, this teaching, this reality of suchness that is always here. So, and, you know, uh, speaking of the pandemic and 
and the limitations of sitting facing a bunch of boxes with faces in them or names in them. Um, you know, there's a, there, there are great lessons from this pandemic. Uh, there are great lessons about limitation and awareness. Right now, uh, here on these screens, there are people from uh, Michigan and California and Massachusetts and Indiana and Ohio and Missouri. And I'm probably missing some. Maybe there are other people I don't know where you're coming from. But And there's a lot of us here in Chicago, too. Uh, this uh, reality of interconnectedness, another uh, way of talking about the Dharma of suchness, this reality is um, has been demonstrated to us through this terrible pandemic. So it took away our temple, but also uh, we're now we now have with us people from all these different places, and uh, we also realize our interconnectedness through the through the pandemic itself, through the virus. Um, if we don't share the vaccines with with people in Africa and South Asia, new variants will come, like this Omicron that's here now. So we're really interconnected in such deep ways. And um, so this is a lesson of this, a teaching from this, an awareness from this. And at the same time, there is the awareness of all of the terrible suffering just in this country So how do we, so the question then is, how do we uh, connect with that? How do we bring it into our lives, into our relationships with the people around us, into our responses to the difficulties of our world? Um, So uh, there are other uh, lines in this teaching poem that help us, again, to see uh, principles of response. So uh, towards the end of this teaching poem, it says, uh, the wooden man starts to sing, the stone woman gets up dancing. So another theme in this in this uh, long long teaching song is about the rival of energy, about how um, from our from our stillness, from our calm, from our um, equanimity, from our practice of uh, settledness and finding some way to support that. Um, energy comes. So there are many there are many Zen sayings like this. The wooden man starts to sing. The stone woman gets up dancing. We also say dragons howl on a withered tree or the plum blossoms on the same withered branch as last year. Out of this stillness, out of this settledness, out of the resilience we can find, 
and equanimity from just sitting and really facing ourselves, really facing all of this, facing the wall, facing a tree, whatever, however we do it, and sustaining it over time. Because sometimes there are these dramatic experiences that the stories sometimes talk about, but there's also just the settling into this dharma of suchness. From that stillness, from that settledness, one man can get, start to sing and the stone woman can get up to dance. This is, is, is a actually a lively practice, even though it looks like there's just this, um, you know, these uh, zombies sitting in stillness and silence in the meditation hall. Actually, this is about finding this energy, this pivotal moment and allowing it to express itself through us. So Dogen emphasized expressiveness as well as settledness. Uh, how do we express this reality of this old Buddha sitting for 10 kalpas, kalpas a very, 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 very long time. Does everybody know what a kalpa is? Anybody not know? Okay, I won't. I won't say because I didn't see any hands up. But um, uh, wait, somebody's waving, Mary Lou. A kalpa, <laughs> and Eileen too. A kalpa is a very long period of time. There are lots of descriptions of how long it is. Uh, one description is if a uh, bird has a in its talons a, a silk scarf and flies over the top of Mount Everest once every hundred years. The time it takes to wear down the mountain completely is a kalpa. <laughs> so that's a long time. <laughs> and in Buddhist, traditional Buddhist cosmology and traditional Indian cosmology, there are, well, there are many kalpas. There's a kalpa where the world arises, a kalpa where it stays kind of stable, a kalpa where it just um, decreases or falls apart, just like empires fall apart, um, as we're seeing. And, um, and then there's the empty kalpa in between before the next big bang. Anyway, so this talking about a long time. <laughs> Ten kalpas is what is uh, how long this Buddha sat just on the edge of total Buddhahood, but not quite going over the edge. Uh, so, um, so the line I mentioned, the wooden man starts to sing the stone woman gets up to dance. And then it says, it is not reached by feelings or consciousness. How could it involve deliberations? So, um, you know, uh, I see many very smart people, <laughs> very, very uh, cultivated people here. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, uh, figuring things out and deliberating has its value. <laughs> but that, that doesn't get it to this. It doesn't get to the dharma of suchness. We can connect with the dharma of suchness, but we can't deliberate and pin it down and figure it out and, and you know, put up a, 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 a flowchart on the wall about it. Um, that's not the kind of thing it is. So, um, so the meaning does not reside in the words, but... This questioning energy, this arrival of energy can 
bring it forth. And that's what we're doing here. Sitting still, uh, studying these old teachings, <laughs> um, which may support, which, you know, it, the point isn't to, you know, memorize. I mean, I have taught this stuff academically, but that's not the point. The point is, how does it support our practice? These old teaching stories, these old Zen songs, how do they support us to actually practice with our body and mind in our activity in the world? So the last line I will mention um, from this song, um, and then we can have some discussion. Dongshan says, Wondrously embraced within the real, drumming and singing begin together. So we are wondrously embraced within the real. We can't, you know, we can't get out of the Dharma of suchness. Suchness includes everything. Wholeness. This is the wholeness of our lives that we get tastes of in our practice if we stick to it. If we just continue to show up in zazen, in this meditation. Um, it's wondrously embraced within the real, and it and Dongshan says, drumming and singing begin together. So this is this principle of response. This these these uh, characters that are translated here that I translated here as drumming and singing could also be uh, translated in other ways. It's like hitting and yelling. Ah, um, it's this instant, immediate response. When the wooden man begins to sing, the stone woman gets up to dance. This drumming and singing, this call and response, this um, this taste of this pivotal moment brings it forth. And we do respond. So, uh, how, so the question really is how to respond to all of the difficulties of our life and the difficulties of the world and to each other and how to do that um, you know, we have these bodhisattva precepts, these principles, uh, guidelines for how to express Buddha. And so um, this, this call and response, this response to, this immediate response, it's not something that we can figure out. You know, we might have all kinds of strategies about it, how to take care of various problems and issues in our life and in the world. And that's fine. That may have its use, but ultimately it's about just this immediate response coming from our settled awareness. So the meaning isn't in the words or in the deliberations or calculations, but our inquiry, our energy, this pivotal moment, this settledness right here is a pivot that allows a response from the ultimate meaning. So I've talked too much, as the song says, uh, but I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. <laughs> and, and whatever you think you, you want to say, you know, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to get it exactly. Uh, anything you say is going to miss the mark, as Nanya said to the sixth ancestor. And still, we we talk with each other. This is how we uh, respond to each other. This is how we get a sense of what what it's all about. And 
uh, and it's not and and even though the meaning is not in the words, it does come forth as we try and um, as we express ourselves in various ways. So I'll, I will stop, and I want to hear any comments or questions or responses you might have. If you if I can see you on screen, you can just raise your hand. If you're not visible, you can go to the participants window on the bottom. And at the bottom of that, there's a raise hand function. So David Ray, would you please help me call on people? So please feel free, comments, questions, responses. Dylan has a question and he has put it in chat because of technical reasons. So here is Dylan's question for you, Tiger. It says, um, it says, the song says, the meaning does not reside in the words, but a pivotal moment brings it forth. Does the meaning reside in interaction with art and or in the process of creative activity? Can breakthrough occur by the line of the Diamond Sutra? Does the meaning reside in the activity of seeing or hearing of sentient beings or the vision and hearing of sentient, of insentient beings? If the meaning doesn't reside there, how could there be meaning in Dongshan seeing his reflection in the stream? If so, why wouldn't meaning then reside in the words? I'm going to put this question in chat so that we can all see it because it's uh, it's got some words in it. <laughs> well, um, yes, the meaning resides everywhere, actually. It doesn't reside just in the words. It doesn't resi- reside in our linguistic logic. Uh, but it's always available. And yes, the, uh, the, the examples that you mentioned, Dylan, are very pertinent. It's in the uh, creative activity. It's in poetry. It's in painting. It's in our breathing, our, when we enjoy our inhale and exhale. Uh, it's there. And uh, yes, it can be expressed. Sometimes it can even be expressed in words and in some of these old teaching songs, but we can't get a hold of it there. The point is that it's ungraspable. So uh, what is the meaning of, a, of an abstract expressionist painting? <laughs> if you were to define it in, you know, some limited way, that's not it. And in our responses to each other, um, <laughs> that's that it's not exactly it's, that's not exactly it either uh and yet um it's everywhere it's always available so uh our practice is not about figuring out something new or discovering some or having some you know wonderful new experience um it's about realizing something that was always here from before your parents were born, <laughs> as they say. So yes, all the things you said are good examples of how to uh, appreciate, enjoy, connect with, and express the Dharma of suchness, and create uh, and all kinds of creative. So Sasan is very much crea- connected with creativity. Uh, and that can be formal creativity. So we have artists and musicians and writers in our sangha, but it's also the creativity of um, cooking or gardening or 
taking a long walk. All of these uh, are ways of expressing this. So thank you, Dylan. Did you have any follow-up? No. Okay. So uh, Asian and Robert O'Dell, um, I see in the in the uh, participants window, uh, and there may be other people with hands raised, but Asian first. Actually, Robert was first, so I'm going to pause. Okay, Robert. Hi. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if you could spend a little bit more time unpacking the uh, the character that translates as Ki or Genki, because if I'm doing it, if I'm doing my understanding correctly of that character, I feel like I'm bringing a lot to the table that might miss the mark more than um, it needs to, uh, with the understanding of Ki or Chi. Okay, I'm going to look up in my notes and see exactly because I yeah, have I think, I think all these characters me. written down, and yeah. I will, I will, and there's so many meanings to that character that uh, they're here somewhere. Um, that, um, but I think I, I hit the major ones um, that it's um, energy. Uh, hold on, I have to see where I am. Okay. Oh, it's back further. It's um, the workings, like the workings of a machine. So Tom Cleary, brilliant translator who passed away this year, translated Shobogenzo Zenki as um, the whole works. So it's the workings of everything. Um, it's... Um, It's also um, energy. It's also um, okay. well, well, is it the same key as in Aikido or Tai Chi? Um. I'm not certain, but I think probably. Yeah. No, actually, that, that, it's not. It's not. That, no, that was that's like a, my, one of my biggest questions. Like, no, it's not. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's another uh, character that's pronounced in Sino Japanese key that's about. Um, uh, it's a kind of specific kind of spiritual energy. This uh, this key is function, capacity, energy. Can refer to the student. It could refer to act, activity, uh, so or just the workings, and even the workings of the whole universe. So, it, it has all those meanings. And Chinese characters often have a lot of uh, overtones and, and various meanings, which makes translation <laughs> interesting and difficult. Um, so, a number of hands. Um, a follow-up question, Robert, or was that does that help? Um, no, it, it's just uh, it was just remaining. Thank you. Sure, uh, Asian is next, and there's a number of people after. I had uh, more um, both comment comment and question about words and meaning. Um, someone asked me once to describe the Dharma in my own words, and I gave them some answer. But I, what I really wish I had said was, you know, if I used my own words no one could understand me. 
because our words, the words and the language that we use are shared and the meanings are shared and the meanings can be different, um, you know, even within our language, but the meanings can be very different person to person. Like, you know, Ko's daughter has her own word now for cow. Um, And along with that, there are many different ways of knowing things. You know, we can know things intellectually or we can know things experientially, or we can know things emotionally, or we can know things procedurally. And um, and some of, I think, studying the self can involve applying, finding words to describe our experience, because that helps us to understand our experience. But I've always been curious about this, about whether we actually need to apply words to our experience, or if we can just let our experience be. Um, and it came up once at a, at a January intensive where I and someone else asked Reb this and Reb said, no, you have to, you have to continue, bring your intellect and your words to the experience. You can't just like let things be, you know, kind of amorphous, but I never asked the follow-up question of why. So I remain sort of wondering, you know, why, why do we need to find words for these experiences? I, and, and the best I've come up with is because it does help us to understand our experience. Or, but, but language is so limited. You know, we, we continue to have experiences that go beyond our capacity for language. Good. Thank you. Yes. So um, we use words. We have to use words to... to uh, uh, to convey something to each other. And um, yet, of course, when you, so for just for example, what popped out to me, when you said the word experience, uh, people here might have different understandings or different um, awarenesses of what that refers to. And there could be many different ways that it refers to things. So, um, yeah, um, language is amorphous. It is um, imprecise, even though, you know, English has become a dominant language in the world because it is better at precision. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, better uh, for, for giving instruction manuals and, uh, and for engineering than some other languages, although other languages manage to do it. Um, So, um, but yes, Oh, uh, you use the word awareness. And our awareness, you know, is conditioned by our language, the way I was talking about before, that we tend to think in terms of subjects, verbing objects. So we want to manipulate things, or we think in terms of, you know, not being verbed by subjects out there. Um, but uh, we see the world is outside. But ex- But our actual awareness... And this is why Zaz, this is one of the ways in which Zazen is so valuable, because as we sit, inhaling and exhaling and facing the wall and facing ourselves and uh, not moving, um, although, you know, of course, our body is always moving and our muscles are alive, but... Um, we have different senses. We 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 um, have awareness based on sounds, 
we have awareness based on how we hear the various textures of the wall in front of us or a tree if you're facing a tree. Uh, we have awareness based on physical sensation, uh, tension in our muscles, um, in our knees or our shoulders or whatever. These are all part of the Dharma of suchness, part of reality, and we have different awarenesses of it. Um, smell, um, taste, all of these things are part of the actual awareness as we are sitting. And, you know, we have words for some of these things, but the words are, you know, pretty imprecise. And as you correctly point out, they mean somewhat different things to different people. Still, we can use words, as Rib said, because, um, especially, you know, especially in, in Zen talk, in, in poetry and nature imagery, as I said, in these, in these stories, um, they point to something that goes beyond the words something that responds to the inner questions of our life. So thank you for that. Uh, did you have any follow-up questions or does that help? No, that does help. Thank you. You're welcome. So we have a number of other people. Yvette? Hi, good morning. Before I speak, I see Paul on his iPad raising his actual hand, so... Oh, okay. Uh, so, Paul, go ahead, Zengu, before Yvette. <sighs> Good afternoon, folks. Um, I have a number of things to say. One is that about the samadhi. We, especially in the West, we have such a tendency to think that samadhi is a, com- samadhi is a commodity, like it, like it exists, like there is something there, that there, there's a there to it it's 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 the absence it's the absence of it's the absence that's why nothing can cling to it that's why it, nothing can be it can't be soiled because it doesn't it's it's, it's the absence not the, not the form of something it's nothing nothing that it's not going to make us smarter or, or prettier or or richer or or more likable or or somebody doesn't do anything for you like that it's not a it's not something it's not something you can shine and put on the wall. It's 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 an absence, and and it's not and it's not gained by some sort of insight or some sudden insight or some way of 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 all of a sudden you know understanding things. It, it's a lot of hard work. That's that's what the that's what the form and emptiness. That's what the emptiness is for. That you have to go through all the steps and stages, which we're not allowed to say, but but it's the truth anyway. Let's see, it's not. Buddhist priests are not supposed to talk about steps and stages, but but it's true. It's, it's a lot of work. You can't you can't get there without doing the work, and it's, it takes a lot of work, and it usually takes a coach to help you go do the work, and it's 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 um it's it's not an instantaneous kind of thing. And as for words, I fought with Reb Tenshin Roshi for years about words. And I finally understood. I finally understood just just in the last few years that that he was always in words and I was always in action. That that words you have it's just like the Genjo Cohen. You have to have the words. You have to accept the words. You have to put the words on so that you can forget the words. If you don't have the words, you can't forget them. So words words are very important. But then once you once you've established the words, 
then you could turn loose of the bird and and and, and let and let let the the nature of all things explain themselves. Anyway, that's my little say. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um... It's not that we can't talk about steps and stages, but that's not the point, <laughs> just to say that. Um, there are So particularly in our lineage, it's about not being caught by stages. And the whole thing is about not being caught, to not, not get caught by our particular patterns of greed or anger or confusion, to see them and uh, not react based on them. Um, but also with the language that we're talking about today in, in language, <laughs> to not get caught by some particular verbal formulation, some idea of steps and stages, which are just, you know, that, that's, it's not, uh, it's really not helpful. To, it's not about reaching some, it's not about getting high. I mean, it, you know, you may get high from sitting, but that's not the point. The point is to sustain it, as uh, Paul was talking about. How do we find a way to just keep showing up in our life? Um, So there was something else I was going to say, and I lost it. Um, There is this response. I mean, that's part of what the, that's a big part of what the song of the Jewel Mary Samadhi is about, that there is this way that, Reality responds to our caring. And we can't pin it down in words, but, you know, we talk about it sometimes just to kind of encourage each other. So uh, in our tradition, we do study sutras. You know, there's a, there is a slogan that's supposed to be from Bodhidharma. It was much later, but that Zen is direct pointing to mind beyond words and letters. Beyond words and letters doesn't mean that we get rid of all words and letters. It doesn't mean we just remain mute and silent the rest of our life. Uh, But we don't get caught by some particular verbal formulation. Any particular verbal formulation is very limited. It may be helpful. So the point of of studying these old teaching songs and stories uh, and studying the sutras is not to get some understanding so you can get a better grade or whatever, or so you can get a, you know, you, you can get some approval from some Zen teacher or whatever. The point is, um, how does it encourage us to sustain our practice? So these songs, these teachings, these stories, these uh, words from the Buddha and the sutras are encouragements for us to sustain our practice. So thank you, Paul. Uh, Yvette. And Yvette, I don't know if I've met you before. Where are you coming to us from? Yes. Hi, everyone. I am here from Santa Fe and uh, land of the Pueblo people, you know, ancestral Tewa land here. And um, yes, so I just completed the um, Anga with Upaya. Oh, good. And, and so I, I, you know, that ended yesterday. And so um, anyone who wants a whole month of the Jewel Mirror, go ahead and go uh, check it out. But I had seen your opening talk and I listened to it again yesterday in between the before the closing council. And I I 
took you up on your invite to come and and listen. And so I was so happy that you were going to talk about the Jill Mirror again and go to this theme of beyond words because you know that's that's kind of a tough one to wrap your you know wordy brain around but um so this has been great and i appreciate it and um and i just wanted to say hi from santa fe and and my appreciation for being to have one more day of the jewel mirror so (laughs) thank you yeah i i spoke at the first talk of this um practice period that my friend Joan Halifax was doing at Upaya um, and talked about the Joel Mayer Samadhi Sum. And uh, so I'm talking about it here as well. And uh, and there's a number of people here who have been to Upaya. So anyway, um, yeah, uh, two, three, four, at least seven different states (laughs) are appearing here. Anyway, Yvette, Thank you for attending, and you're welcome to come to any of uh, the Ancient Dragon. All of you are welcome to come to any of the Ancient Dragon programs. You can zoom in from wherever you are. So, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kathy, did you have your hand up? Yes, thank you. Um, A a few different things. I I have enjoyed these two talks uh, very much. They've been helpful to me on the jewel mirror. Um, A couple things. Um, One is, as Nancy uh, uh, was talking, I I was thinking about the fact that there's research that shows that people who speak multiple languages have more cultural sensitivity than people who only speak one language. And so I think that's interesting because it speaks to how language must change us, you know, um, makes different, uh, the interaction that it makes possible, maybe both with ourselves and with others. I I do think it has an impact on us. Um, But that was an interesting conversation. The other thing that I I wanted to say is uh, I have been viewing more Dharma talks by Thich Nhat Hanh this week. Um, and wanted to pay tribute to him because I think, you know, and one being um, on the show, the radio show on being this morning, he spoke, if you want to look it up. Um, But when it comes to what to do with this, you know, um, um, he is so to the point, there's such clarity, you know, I, I think it speaks to his, um, incredible practice that there's such clarity in terms of turning toward the conflict, turning toward um, the, you know, whether it's, you know, during war, you know, which what's what he did at the peace treaties or, or now when I think of, you know, why do some people not get vaccinated or why do some people, um, do certain things or how to deal with um, uh, the dilemma around uh, 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 how do we deal with crime or, you know, the, the, how do we uh, support uh, policemen and uh, maintain uh, reasonable practices in that way. He, he um, gets, he is very clear in terms of how to turn toward 
uh, not turn away from. And I feel like there's a huge empathic part to that, um, which is extremely important rather than standing back and labeling um, to try to identify and understand where people are coming from. Um, Anyway, I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kathy. And I I have a number of things to say in response. Uh, Yes, um, about Thich Nhat Hanh, last Sunday, I believe it's the talk is on uh, our website, Gyoshin Long Ross, one of our practice leaders, spoke about Thich Nhat Hanh and about Bell Hooks, who's also passed recently, another great teacher. Um, and I, I uh, mentioned some of my experience of Thich Nhat Hanh um, at a couple of long uh, seminars that they did at Green Gulch and south of there, on one on the Lotus Sutra, uh, he was remarkable. He, um, the seminar he did on the Lotus Sutra, as I was sitting there listening to him, I really, really felt like I was on Vulture Peak listening to the Buddha. It was just, it wasn't some idea. It was just my experience anyway. Um, but I appreciate your bringing up Thich Nhat Hanh in the context of peacemaking. And uh, I wasn't going to get into this today, but um, since you mentioned that, uh, I went to a very long uh, seminar yesterday online about um, our current situation. And, and so I'll just say a little bit about the situation of uh, nuclear weapons, which uh, many of us think is something that are that's in the past, and but it's actually a very urgent uh, current problem. We have these ICBMs and they're on trigger hair release and the United States has a policy of first use. Uh, If we think somebody else is going to use them, then we will before they do, uh, which is horrible. And so there are some people in Congress trying to stop some of this. Um, It's really an important situation in our world now. And then the other thing is about peace is the whole... um, uh, urging to war and about the Ukraine, um, as uh, a couple of con- of Congress people have said, war does not solve anything. So uh, this this um, encouragement to go to war with in, in Ukraine that is blasting from all the politicians and from the media, it just reminds me so much of Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan and. Uh, military solutions are not solutions. So um, even if diplomacy is difficult, uh, we ha- that's the only way to actually make peace. So Thich Nhat Hanh talked about this a lot in the context of the war in Vietnam. So um, we're in a very, very dangerous time when people, you know, when the forces of, when the people who profit from war um, there are five major corporations that make uh, military weapons, Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, uh, Raytheon, I forget the fifth. Uh, make, they're make, they make a huge profit from the, the Congress recently expanded the budget for the Pentagon 
far beyond what the Pentagon had even asked for. Uh, so these companies who are, get very rich from war are uh, affecting our, our world situation. So um, I could say a whole lot more about all of that, but uh, it's something to pay attention to now that we need to make peace. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talked about, uh, about this in lots of very helpful ways. So to see to see a so-called enemy is not, it doesn't help to try and bring uh, bombers and, weapon, and, and weapons and tanks to engage them. It's, we need to, um, you know, this, this is just like the idea of responding, you know, when there's a, when we have some conflict with, you know, a friend or family member or neighbor, uh, trying to vanquish them is not helpful. How do we find, how do we support that cooperation? Anyway, it's a very uh, significant time in our world about all of this. So thank you, Kathy, for mentioning that and for mentioning Thich Nhat Hanh. Any other questions about the limitations of language, about the Jomer Samadhi, about the Donald Suchness, about how we respond. Can I can I say something? I couldn't find a way to. I'm sorry, it's Mary Lou. I'm sorry, I didn't. Hi, Mary Lou. And it's fine. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, is it okay for me to talk, or should we? Yes, please, please. Okay, go ahead. Oh, thank you, everyone. Um, and this is such a rich discussion. And I just want to say something um, about the roots of conflict, and that Thich Nhat Han addressed this, as Kathy mentioned, and you, Tegan, just emphasized. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh was once asked in the 1960s and when he was in the U.S. advocating for an end to the war in Vietnam, why don't you go back to Vietnam and do your work there? And he responded that the roots of the conflict were in the U.S. And um, so I think that that's still very true for us. The roots of conflict is what we really have to address. And in a fear-driven environment such as now. I mean, the pandemic has induced or maybe accelerated this um, fearful, you know, um, energy or atmosphere. And um, so uh, meditation practice uh, to me is so valuable in, 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 in releasing my own fear. And I think that as, um, you know, spiritual practitioners, the more we can share uh, with others, either on an interpersonal level or on an international level, um, the necessity of overcoming fear and seeing the roots of the fearful energies in others whom we regard as adversaries, that's really quite essential. And um I remember in the 1980s being a part of the anti-nuclear movement, you know, and the movement was so successful that Ronald Reagan was elected on the basis of protecting us from, you know, the movement was successful in, in elevating our awareness of the threat. I would, I would say it was very successful in, in you know, in increasing public awareness of the threat of nuclear use and nuclear War, which has been appropriately named MAD from Mutual Assured Destruction. 
And so the anti-nuclear movement was very successful there. But then Ronald Reagan came in and said, here's the answer. We'll build, you know, a Star Wars type thing, S.H.I.E.L.D. And so it just fed the fear that had been brought to the surface by the anti-nuclear movement. And so without an awareness, um, you know, of what, like, at least for me personally, of my own, like, what, what am I afraid of? either in, you know, just a little, little personal thing or, or the climate collapse, you know, um, addressing fear and using our practice to help us um, steady that, that human emotion is um, really essential. And um, so that's obviously one of the things that Thich Nhat Hanh did so um, successfully and powerfully I mean, he he overcame people who tried to kill him. So, um, so I think that that's really, uh, you know, our challenge right now. And and maybe it has always been. I don't know, but certainly the presence of nuclear weapons and the continuing nuclear um, development um, makes it very urgent. Thank you very much, Mary Lou. Um, some responses. First of all, practicing with fear. Um, courage is not about f- having no fear. It's not about getting rid of fear. Uh, we have to face our fears from the place of practice, from the place of settledness, from uh, enjoying our inhale and exhale, from steadiness and resilience, and not be caught by our fear. What's happening in the world today is fear is being encouraged, and uh, people are encouraging people to be afraid of people who are different than them. So we have to see how we're all part of this dharma of suchness, to put it that way. And, uh, but see that we do have fears and our, our fears for ourselves, for our world and so forth, and fears of particular other people or whatever, it comes up in our zazen and the point that encourage is about facing that, facing those fears. Um, going back to Thich Nhat Hanh, he encouraged Martin Luther King to uh, come out against the Vietnam War, which Dr. King did a year to the day from when he was killed, not a coincidence. Um, and uh, uh, there's so much to say about all of that. Um, uh, we do need another uh, anti-nuclear weapons movement in in our country now very very much we do need a peace movement again I was part of that during the Vietnam War way back before most of you were born anyway um, yeah it's a dangerous time so we need to be aware of this and of course that brings up all kinds of fears but we have to face them and and respond and you know, we can each uh, write to or call our Congress people and say, please don't support war. Uh, please support diplomacy. Uh, there's a lot of forces that are pushing us to war right now. And it's very dangerous. And the nuclear weapons are on hair triggers. So, uh, and uh, Dr. King said in that speech uh, when he came out against the Vietnam War that 
the greatest purveyor of violence in the world is the United States government. It's my own government. So we still have um, 53% of our um, national budget is involved with military. And that doesn't include the nuclear weapons, which are part of the energy department and uh, many millions of dollars going into that. And so the, government, the people and the politicians say we can't afford health care, we can't afford child care, we can't afford to get rid of student debt, we can't afford um, to take care of housing and education. Uh, a tiny, tiny fraction of all the money that's being spent on war by our tax dollars would take care of all that. So in the spirit of Tickman Han and Dr. King, I'll say that. Um, so it's a large topic, but please pay attention to what's going on. Please don't be caught by your fear of Ukrainians or Russians or Chinese or, you know, all these people we think are different or separate from the Dharma of suchness. They're not. Uh, Robert Odell has his hand up again. Robert, please. Um, yeah, just on language again. I, yes. I was really interested in the, the Baba Wawa because um, the child that goes Baba Wawa um, learns to speak. And so I was wondering if the implication was that we also can learn to speak about suchness in the same way that the baby is able to learn to speak about the world, or is there something essential about the Dharma of suchness that um, evades or articulate depiction? Uh, Good question. I would say both. <laughs> that uh, we can't capture the reality of just this suchness in words. We can't completely, you know, get it, get a hold of it and put it in a little box. That's not what it's about. And yet, um, you know, I'm always interested in, as I asked uh, Ko about Amaya, what uh, what her, her first words were. I'm always interested in how babies start to speak, how they put language together, how, uh, you know, uh, Gary Snyder in his wonderful book, The Practice of uh, uh, the Wild, talks about the, the wildness of language. It's not something that, you know, it's possible for linguists to, uh, you know, see how different languages work. And, and going back to, I forget who said it, but the, uh, maybe Kathy about learning different languages. Yes, I agree. That's a, uh, uh, I'm very bad at languages, even though I've done some translations. I, I kind of envy Europeans because they have all these different languages right around them. So they, they uh, often learn many languages. And I think that does expand uh, our true real awareness, including awareness of suchness. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, we can, uh, we can learn to speak and we can learn to, you know, write poetry about suchness or something. <laughs> um, and also the point is not to get caught by any particular uh, verbal formulation. So uh, to continue to pay attention and look and not think you've got the final answer. So uh, thank you for that, Robert. So um, I don't see any other hands. Is there any other last, did David Ray, did you have a, a comment or question? Put us or something in the chat. Can't hear you. Mute. I'm just unmuting to say no. No, I don't have a question now. 
Okay, good. Anybody, any other last questions before we do announcements and then our closing chant of the Jewel Mayor Samadhi? Can, can I just say one more thing? It's Mary Lou chiming in one more. Hi, Mary Lou, please. Yes, go ahead. Um, just, just, I'm sorry, but I was so riveted by the services this past week with Chignat Han that we're all live streamed. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, he suffered a stroke and lost his ability to speak. And so when we're talking about language, um, I mean, here's, here's, you know, a, a Zen master and, and, and was undergoing speech therapy until he finally said no more. And so he voluntarily stopped the process of recovering his ability to speak. And so that in itself was a teaching and that's how it was embraced by his uh, students. And I thought that was very poignant too, that he finally, his final teaching was, you know, speech, it, it has its value. I mean, he ensailed us, but, uh, and it was a prolific writer and poet, but in the end, um, our, our learning is beyond words. And uh, so I, I thought that was beautiful. Um, lesson, uh, final lesson from Tignathan. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, that's right. The, um, there have been many great teachers who uh, used other than words. Uh, you know, Paul Disco talks a lot about uh, actions and ex- as expression and work as, as teaching. And uh, so, you know, we don't get caught by words. And, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking, you mentioned Tignathan's stroke. I'm also thinking of Ramdas, who was a, a great spiritual leader in, in our time, and he had a stroke, and uh, he could speak haltingly, but he he conveyed more by just sitting there and smiling. So, uh, thank you all. Uh, oh, Eileen has her hand up. Eileen, hi. Hi. Um, oops, let me get myself back here this is it's it's a brief observation and i uh about babies and speech and um, i'll just i'll just relate an experience they oh sort of when we had a little window opening where covid wasn't too bad and um someone had had a baby and i got to meet the baby for the first time and the baby was about five months old uh pretty pre-verbal as we we call it. I don't know if preverbal is a very good term, but <laughs> I don't know that being verbal eventually is, is always the best goal. But anyway, like like preliterate. But um, this baby and I have the most wonderful instant connection. I'm not one of these people that loves all babies or relates to all this baby. And we talk for a very long time with our eyes. I am 1000% uh, clear on that. I don't think, I know it's not a projection as much as we can know anything. So I do find that uh, sometimes among adults, um, there's something about, there's something about latching onto that or understanding that as, as a means of communication before any other language gets piled on top of it. And uh, again, just relating an experience and I'm sure there are a lot of questions in there. Um, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. And you were talking about preverbal, and maybe Thich Nhat Hanh was postverbal. 
towards the end. So thank you all.